All right, Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Miraoth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in manners of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you were sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem, and whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I... Artaxerxes the king make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons." We also notify you that it shall be not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment, or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and to extend it to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage 
for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In uh, one of the greatest movies of all time, The Wizard of Oz, and I'm not going to put any qualifiers on that, it's just objectively true, uh, one of the quirks of that movie is that you don't meet the title character until like an hour into the film, right? You spend the whole film wondering who this mysterious wizard is, and apparently all the characters kind of feel the same about him. Uh, and, and when you get there to the city of Oz, uh, his own guard claims, well, I've never actually seen him. And uh, this leads Dorothy to question whether he exists at all. And we, the audience, don't meet him until the movie's just about over. Um, I hope that's not too many spoilers for anyone. I assume people have seen The Wizard of Oz. We're okay there? Good. Um, I thought about this because apparently Ezra is kind of like The Wizard of Oz. We've been throwing his name around for weeks without actually seeing the man. And here in Chapter 7, he finally makes this dramatic entrance and... It's nice to know that Ezra is not just a figment of our imagination. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we suddenly realize, because the whole narrative shifts into first person, we can conclude that Ezra, he's been our narrator all along, uh, that everything so far in the book of Ezra has been Ezra providing backstory to his own arrival on the scene some years later. And now this revival we've been watching, is, is, it continues, but it continues under a new king and a new leader, for God's people. Um, now, one of the interesting things we see right off the bat is that this revival we've been reading about is not limited to one place or one group of people. It extends all the way back to Babylonia and Persia. Um, a book like this, you wouldn't be terribly surprised if it just focused on the pioneers where the excitement's happening, you know. Um, and, you know, they're the ones doing all the suffering. They did all the building. Like, you know, they're the, they're the hard-nosed ones that, that, that built on the frontier. And we tend to think a little bit like the little red hen you know, we put in the work, so, you know, the glory and joy should be for us. We don't have to share the bread. We did all the work. Uh, but Ezra tells us that God was also still at work back in Persia, not just in Jerusalem. Uh, he was stirring up yet another generation of people uh, to give up the perks and the privileges and the comforts of living in the big city and moving instead to the frontier town of Jerusalem. So what do we know about Ezra's character? Well, he's going to tell us some things. Now, I don't know about you, but introductions can be awkward, um, especially if you don't actually really know the person you're introducing. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever introduced somebody and in the process realize you don't remember their name or didn't hear it clearly, and suddenly you turn around and introduce them. Like, I don't know, I, I've been there, but uh feels like an episode of Seinfeld, right? Um, it's easier to introduce yourself which is what uh, Ezra's doing here, but that can be hard too. You know, if, if you guys, you know, walk into school and your teacher says, well, why don't you tell us something about yourself? Like, I dread questions like that. It's like, where do you start? Uh, it's too open-ended. But we have several go-tos when people say that kind of thing, right? We, we will tell them about, we'll, we'll tell them about where we work. Uh, we'll tell them maybe what we study in school or what we did study, you know. Uh, we'll tell them about our family, uh, we'll tell them other people we know, things where you might have connections with them or something like that, that kind of stuff. And, and that's kind of what Ezra does here in, as he's introducing himself. He begins, naturally enough, by giving us a genealogy. Um, 
In other words, he's telling us about his family. And, of course, we all do this. Family defines us in so many ways. And so, like, yes, I'm defined as being a, a father of six, and I'm a husband to Georgia. Like, you know, like, I, I have certain things, and even my last name indicates something about me. Um, so here we have this genealogy to start. And, of course, we often skip genealogies, and I'm not going to get into the individual names or anything like that, but he inserts this thing for what's kind of an obvious reason because of where he ends up with it. Uh, he is establishing his credentials as a son of Aaron. So, in other words, even though his parents or grandparents or whoever it would have been did not leave with the first wave of migrants back to Jerusalem, he wants us to know, like, look, I am the real deal. I am a descendant of Aaron. So he, he tells us this, this bloodline to establish that he is of the priestly line. And he also describes himself there in verse 6 as a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. This is an unbiased resume he's giving us, too. But he's telling us about his work and what he studied. So he's a Bible scholar, uh, which in the Old Testament meant that he essentially had to double as a lawyer. You know, when you go to seminary these days, uh, they typically have a department, they did at Westminster, that they call practical theology, uh, which in theory is about how to actually do actual pastoring stuff. Um, It's not really... uh, they end up missing an awful lot of things. Nothing in seminary, you find, prepares you for some of the weird stuff that you actually have to do as a pastor. They just don't do that. They don't cover all the weird. So let's just say the manual isn't always clear on the details. Like, you know, the BCO doesn't shed light on every little thing. But to be a scribe in the Old Testament was very practical theology uh, because the law was meant to be practiced. When we read the Old Testament, if we sit down and read Leviticus you know, we, we, t- t- we tend to, we, as Christians, we separate the law into categories. We, there's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, there's the cultural elements of the law, and we realize that we're no longer bound by the ceremonial and the cultural stuff. Uh, but in the Old Testament, those details were still binding. The, the, the Levitical stuff about, like, the ceremonial washings and stuff about, like, bodily discharges and mold and other weird things that make appearances there, this was all in the category of very practical theology in the Old Testament. And yet, most of those practices had fallen away at this point, because without a temple and without a homeland and without the full freedom of worship that they had enjoyed under the kingdom, like, a lot of this practical theology got left behind. So to study and be an expert in God's law and these particulars while you're in exile and unable to fulfill a lot of it, I mean, that's quite a commitment. It's like studying Latin today, you know, like only nerds would do this, Ezra. But it also shows faith because Ezra is studying in the certain hope that God is restoring the nation and is going to bring him back to that place just as he had promised to do for his people. So Ezra wants us to know He's not only a son of Aaron, he's lived up to that pedigree by studying God's law, even in Babylon. He's preparing for Jerusalem. And I think that's worth pausing to note in and of itself. I I mean, maybe your parents told you or somebody did that, you know, it it makes sense to dress for the job you want, not the job you have. I started wearing robes six years ago, just in case of just such an eventuality. No, that's not true. I don't even wear a bathrobe. I prefer a flash dash method of getting back to the bedroom, but that's a different matter. Um, Ezra Ezra is kind of an example here of dressing for the job that he wants. He has lived 
his entire life with a singular focus on the future and where God will take him. He has lived an expectation of where God is going to be taking him. He has been living for it, preparing for it, studying for the future and what God will do. And I think that is important to pause and think about because if we expect revival and we expect restoration, that should affect how we live and prepare, how we spend our time and our money and our efforts should reflect faith and confidence, not only in what God has done, but in what he will do. And that's how Ezra has lived up to this moment. He is ready for this because he made a point of being ready for this. And he gives us another interesting detail about himself in verse 6. He tells us that the king gives him whatever he asks for. Now, this is a new king. A number of years has elapsed since the last chapter. But just like Cyrus and just like Darius before him, God has given Artaxerxes a favorable attitude toward God's people. And so Ezra, he's doing part of what he's doing in this introduction is he's letting you know who he knows, his political connections. He doesn't explain how the king knows him, but what we need to know is that they're on apparently very good terms. So Ezra wants you to know what he has going for him as he introduces himself. He's like, you know, here's my pedigree. Here's my family background. Here is my academic background. Here is my political connections and who I know. He has a lot to offer. But perhaps most important so far is what he says in the last, at, 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 at the end of this, par- at the, I'm sorry, the last part of this paragraph, he says that the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. His bloodline, his family, his academic background, and his political connections are all credited to God. That verse is there not None of this is intended as a boast. Uh, The assets that he has and that he brings to the table are not ultimately credited to Ezra. Ezra wants it clearly understood that whatever he has to offer was God's gift to him. So he wants no credit for whatever is about to happen. And then he gets to the second paragraph. He tells us that he he gives a brief snapshot, and it's going to give more detail later in coming chapters. But he he explains that they did move to Jerusalem. He doesn't go alone. Verse 7 says he brings an entire entourage with him. He's got some families, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, all kinds of people who are going to work in the temple. And they make the trip in four months because, again, verse 9 says God's good hand was on Ezra. Four months sounds like a long time for so many miles, but travel was much more difficult back then, especially if you're making a permanent move. Um, My wife prides herself on packing light. The last time we flew somewhere, we got the cheapest tickets we could, and we were only allowed to carry on, and she carried all of life's necessities in a tiny little sack. I mean, it's inspirational. You should see the way she packs. I don't know how she does it. Um, But that doesn't work when you move your entire family to a new city, and especially when we end up hearing what the king is sending with these guys. So Ezra has started introducing himself, but he he gets more into this stuff because he wants to share this letter, and he wants to explain also his, his, his motives for why he's doing this and what his role is in the story. Because after all, most people don't move four months away on a whim. This requires forethought and planning and, if I may say, vision. Well, verse 10 gives us Ezra's vision and his mission statement, if you like, and I want to read that one again. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. 
That's a pretty good statement. Ezra has set his heart on studying God's word, but also to obey it and to teach it to others. His mission can be boiled down to three verbs here, to study, to do, and to teach God's word. That's Ezra's passion. That's what he lives for. That's what his heart is set on. And once again, just as it pays to be preparing for the future, it also pays to have a vision about where you're going. And Ezra's vision is to go to Jerusalem and teach God's word. Not because they didn't already have God's word, because they had God's word there. Of course they did. But because no revival is ultimately sustainable if it is not anchored in the word of God. The word of God is what keeps revival from dying out or going off the rails. It's the fuel, but it's also the steering system, if you like. If the word is not studied and taught, revival has a tendency to turn into chaos. Because the enemy likes to take advantage of the energy and the excitement of a revival and then twist it to destructive ends. And he has an easy time doing this if God's word is downplayed or doesn't remain central. Revival without the word becomes deadly. Revival requires scriptural vision to stay on track. And we see this throughout history and we see it even in scripture. Oftentimes, right after spiritual highs, there is often this tumbling fall. So if you think back into the Old Testament, the Israelites, right after the Exodus, spiritual high, right? What happens as soon as they get out into the wilderness? They fall into idolatry with the golden calf. I, I think of the moment when Peter confesses Christ, right? And, you know, Jesus telling, you know, blessed are you, Simon. You know, it, you know, God has revealed this stuff to you. And then like five minutes later, Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. All because Peter, in his excitement, had denied Jesus' words. If you read up on American history, uh, most of you are, uh, have heard of the First Great Awakening. Uh, it's a wonderful time in history, a time of rejuvenation of the church in North America. It was led by great preaching. The word was central. It was being proclaimed by the likes of like, you know, George Whitfields and Jonathan Edwards. But much less impressive in history is the Second Great Awakening a few years later. Uh, Charles Finney who was, I think, for my part, I think he was part of the problem, uh, he described western New York in those days as the burned-over district. And what he meant by this is that the religious fervor had virtually torched the place and left it uh, barren. He described what, was, what happened there in his autobiography. He said, there had been a wild excitement passing through that region, which they called a revival of religion, but which turned out to be spurious. It was reported as having a very extravagant excitement and resulted in a reaction so extensive and profound as to leave the impression on many minds that religion was a mere delusion. And you can tell that he was onto something there, that the Second Great Awakening turned bad because of its fruit. It produced Mormonism, a lot of end-of-the-world fanaticism, uh, socialism, utopianism, feminism, the social gospel. The very first seances happened in western New York during the Second Great Awakening. Post-millennialism was strong in the time, too. But all of these things have their roots in Western New York and the Second Great Awakening. Clearly, this is a revival that went off the rails. And that doesn't mean that every conversion was false, but the results were mixed at best. And you see a similar thing. I don't know how many of you went to see the Jesus Revolution movie. There's a similar pattern even there. I, I think there was real revival happening there and real movement of the Holy Spirit there in the, in the hippie era in the California days. But there were excesses as well, and the movie portrays some of it, and some of the leaders 
were led astray, and there was some parlor tricks and promises of healings and a sort of health, wealth, charismatic idea happening there, and people claiming that they had new special revelations from God, and that's when cooler heads had to step in and kind of put their foot down and try to get back to the word. Uh, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that Jesus, just, just because a revival is happening doesn't mean it can't get ugly. And a verse came to mind, some of you are familiar, I'm sure, with it, Proverbs 29, 18 a lot of us remember the first half of the verse anyway. In the King James, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that's one of these go-to verses when churches are writing new vision statements, right? Uh, and that's not wrong. Churches need vision, even if it doesn't appear as a statement or a neat little catchphrase. We need vision. But it's not primarily about vision statements. Uh, the idea is that lack of vision, as in lack of direction from God, is deadly, The ESV translates that proverb this way. It says, uh, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint or are discouraged. So without vision, the people get what moms of infants call rammy. They cast off restraint, they go astray, or just as bad, they get discouraged. My favorite version of that is the Young's Literal Translation. That's closest to the original Hebrew. It says, without a vision is a people made naked. All of these are true. Uh, If there is no vision, if they are not rooted in the word of God, then even revival becomes deadly, unmoored, unruly, unhinged, discouraging, and naked or embarrassing. And the solution is provided in the second half of that proverb. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Vision in that proverb is not some random message that comes in your sleep. It's defined by commitment to God's law. Knowing God's word will prevent God's people from wandering aimlessly. And if you want revival to stay healthy, it needs prophetic vision. Someone needs to keep the people anchored in the word. And that is Ezra's vision. And that is his mission. This book is basically the story of Ezra's mission to go to Jerusalem and provide law and order on the frontier. He's like a lawman in an old spaghetti western film. But in doing so, this is going to secure the progress that God's people have made. The revival won't go off the rails if the word remains central, but the people need a teacher. So God has placed it in Ezra's heart to be that guy. So that's the man, and that's his mission. Ezra has been preparing all his life for this moment, but he has another thing going for him, the favor of the king. And the king sends Ezra to Jerusalem, not only with his permission, but with his blessing. And I don't know why Artaxerxes was so fond of Ezra, but this letter is really incredible. It's it's similar to, and maybe even more uh, beyond, the letter that we saw last week from Darius. It's a long letter, and I'm not going to reread it in its entirety, but there are several conditions in the letter worth noticing. Artaxerxes' letter is full of gifts. He, He gives permission to any and all Jews to follow Ezra back to Jerusalem, so even the latecomers are allowed to go join the revival. He he also sends Ezra to be an enforcer, not only of of his law, but of God's law. He literally commands Ezra to go worship our God and enforce his law. In verse 24, he literally tells him to go appoint judges and magistrates who will govern not according to, to just Persian law, but God's law. So he's sending Ezra not as an agent of the state, but of God. It says that he and his advisors personally sent cash in verse 16. They sent government money in verse 20. Uh, Ezra is also given an allowance from the local treasury of other goods. One of my favorite parts of the letter is, is probably verse 22. Up to 100 talents of silver, 
100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. I don't know what a core is. I know that a bath is not a literal, like, bathtub full, but I do love that image. Baths of wine and oil. The translation seems to be that there's about 600 gallons promised of each here. That's not half bad. But my favorite is the final item, salt without prescribing how much. Ezra has a blank check on salt. What could be a greater sign of God's favor? I love it because I love salt. And the Bible does too. Salt is always a positive good in Scripture. This is not a low-sodium book. Sorry to my mother. On top of all that, Artaxerxes makes it government policy in verse 24 that everyone working in the temple on the worship of God will be tax-exempt. Do I even have to explain what a nice gift that is? Makes the minister's housing allowance in our country look like pretty weak sauce. Finally, Artaxerxes ends his letter similarly to Darius with a series of threats. He's slightly less graphic than Darius was. There's no impalement. There's no dunghills mentioned. Uh, But he seems to be giving sort of carte blanche on the punishments. Like, you know, don't do this, and you're looking at death, banishment, seizure of property, prison, whatever seems best. And why does Artaxerxes do all this? The answer is in verse 23. It echoes what his father Darius had said Let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Artaxerxes has not forgotten that his God, this God, has preserved his father. Uh, Darius was good to the Jews and their God, and he ended up reigning for 36 years. Artaxerxes wants some of that action. So it pays to be on God's good side. Again, this is not a bad instinct. So here's our picture of Ezra, right? He's a man on a mission. He's he's had a lifelong passion for the word. He is a straight-A student of God's law. He's been preparing all his life to enter the mission field in Jerusalem, and now he has a commission from the king to go there and do a spiritual checkup on the people to go and teach. Ezra's mission is to go shepherd God's people in Jerusalem, and with all these riches... And all, and the, he's got the, the, the law of God in his hand, the king says. And he has a letter from the king in his other hand. Like, he would make quite a splash walking into town. He's got, a, a, you know, carts full of gold and silver behind him. Uh, Ezra is kind of like, he's like a spiritual hotshot here, is the way he's kind of presented. And it would be tempting to make him the hero of the story. I mean, after all, he's the one writing it, right? I mean, he could go anywhere he wants with it. But I want you to see again how Ezra wraps up this grand introduction. In verse 27 and 28, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So this is the first direct quote that we have from Ezra himself where he switches into the first person and he takes this moment to do what? To praise God. He responds to this commission from the king with a doxology and he points our attention away from the king and away from himself and back to God. Because God is the source of all the good stuff. 
Ezra takes not one ounce of credit for any of it. God put this idea into the heart of the king. And the reason why all the king's horses and all the king's men, not to mention the king himself, have been so kind to Ezra specifically is because God loves Ezra. It's not because Ezra was so brilliant or so wonderful. God loved Ezra, and therefore he extends that love before the king and his counselors. They are going to love him because God does. And this last paragraph, this is the key to understanding Ezra's part in the story. And I think it's key to understanding the gospel and how it presents in the story and how God acts with his people. Because it's God's steadfast love that leads him to restore his people to Jerusalem. That's what they sang out when the foundation was laid back in chapter 3. They said, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. It is because God loves his people that he got them to Jerusalem. It's because God loves his people that he enabled to give them, give them success with the building. It's because God loves his people that he raises up a teacher to go and shepherd them. And because he loves Ezra, he opens the vast treasuries of Persia to him. I don't know how many of you made it to the fair last weekend in Allentown over at the fairgrounds. We went twice, actually. Kind of got hoodwinked. But uh, (laughs) one of the things they had that we sat through was the farm-themed magic show. It was okay. Uh, The magician invited several kids up to sort of participate in the act, you know, get them involved. And, And one of the questions that he asked the one kid was where pizza came from. And he gave it as a multiple choice question. He says, well, you know, does it come from Domino's? Does it come from Little Caesars? And like the last option is like, or does it come from a farm? The kid said Domino's because he wasn't real bright. But the point is, is that, um, I mean, come on, the guy's like up there in overalls. Like, what do you think he was going to say? Um, the answer he's looking for is the farm because every ingredient in the pizza has its ultimate origins in a farm somewhere, right? You know, the wheat to make the dough, the oil even, the tomato sauce, the cheese, the, the meats, uh, vegetables, if you're into that kind of thing, whatever. Um, it's kind of silly, but his point was that you should always thank a farmer. That's what he's getting at, right? He, he wanted to make the kids aware everything has this source at the farm. Ezra, likewise, reminds us that every good thing has its ultimate source in God. So when he comes to the end of this brilliant, wonderful letter, showering gifts from the king, he doesn't praise the king. He blesses the Lord who extended his love to him and who put that idea in the king's heart. Because God is the source of everything. Every good thing that happened begins first with God extending his love. And I think this scene is yet another picture and foreshadow of Jesus. We saw that the Passover lamb prefigured Christ last week, but also how earlier the temple itself foreshadowed Jesus' dwelling with his people. And now God is sending someone to teach his people and to shepherd them in the way of righteousness. And this also points forward to an even better teacher in Jesus. But in every one of those instances, again, God is motivated solely by his steadfast love, not what we've accomplished God loves his people, so he sends them back to Jerusalem. God loves them enough to send them Haggai and Zechariah to give them a shake. He loves them enough to send Ezra to teach them, just as he so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
God is the ultimate source of every revival. Revival literally means to take something and make it alive again. And if that's the definition, then God must do it because only God makes dead things alive. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just start the fire. He keeps it going. He gives it direction. And perhaps the best part of this is how Ezra closes. He closes by saying that he took courage. And why does he take courage? Because he has the law, or he has all this money, or he has the blessing and and support of the king? No. Why does he take courage? Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. That's the third time that we've seen that line in this chapter alone. It's the unifying thought of the chapter. God's hand is the active force. The invisible hand that makes things happen is not the free market, Pax Adam Smith. It is God's hand on his people. And there is no more relevant fact that you can share about yourself and your status than your status before God. It's more relevant than your school that you went to or the major that you took up or your GPA or your job history or your political connections or where you grew up or your family history. What's more relevant is that God's hand is on you. And in what way is it on you? We we saw a few weeks ago how God's eye was on his people. That was a phrase that got used. And we said that could mean different things in different contexts, couldn't it? And that's just as true with hands. Hands get used for many purposes, not always pleasant. When we say the phrase laying hands on someone, that can mean everything from beating them up uh, to arresting them, and yet also it could be like laying hands on the sick for healing or to ordain somebody or to bless someone. Uh, And what Ezra means by this in this context is that God is working. His hand represents protection His hand represents guidance. His hand represents provision. His hand is an extension of his steadfast love. God's touch is a loving touch for his people. In Christ, his hand is not a threat. His hand is not heavy on you. If you belong to him, his hand is meant to give you courage. How many of you could use a dose of courage this week? I must confess, I'm not always a very courageous person. I said recently in another message that my life is often, you could categorize it, just being governed by my various fears prodding me in different directions. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, When I think of all the challenges facing me uh, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, uh, the challenges facing this church or even the church universally, hearing from some of our sister churches yesterday, it's overwhelming. I don't always face those challenges with courage. But Ezra says that courage comes from knowing that God's hand is on you. And it's so important that he says it three times, and I think maybe he's trying to get our attention with it. You know, in this introduction of himself, the most important thing Ezra wants you to know about himself, the reverberating theme, is not his resume, but the fact that God's hand is on him, and, as it says in verse 9, that it is a good hand. 
Ezra's the narrator, but the hero is God and his good hand. And Ezra's goal is not to introduce us only to himself, but to the God that is with him and has his hand on him. It's not how we often introduce ourselves. Maybe it should be. What could be more central to your identity as a Christian than Christ? What is your job and your family and your education and your various connections? What do they matter apart from him? Am I, for instance, am I a minister at LVPC or a servant of Christ who loves me? Which is my primary identity? I think it better be the former, just in case I was not the latter. (laughs) I compared Ezra's arrival to Wizard of Oz, right? Uh, You know, and one of the things about that movie, when you finally meet the wizard, you come to realize that he's actually kind of a weak character, right? He's he's nervous, he's insecure, not very courageous. Uh, Turns out that the man behind the curtain is kind of pathetic. But for Ezra and for us, the story is completely different. <laughs> the one behind the curtain is far greater than what you can see or imagine. The one, that, the hand that is pulling the strings has all the power. His hand is mighty, but it is also good. And we should therefore have courage as Christians and as a church because, once again, we know more than Ezra. We know the rest of the story, don't we? We know that God became man, and now his hands bear scars that healed our sins. And the same hand that made the world now has a nail hole in it. It's a mighty hand, but we know even better than Ezra that it is good. So what do we have to be afraid of? Take courage because his love for his people is steadfast, and in Christ God's hand is on you, and it is good. And we'll see more of that in the coming weeks. But for now, let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, you are so good to your people, Lord. Your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, we can't explain that based on our merits. But if your hand is on us, Lord, you do not mean to harm us by it. We thank you that your hand is good on your people. And that you don't leave us wandering aimlessly, Lord. You supplied, Lord, not only Ezra and other great teachers, Lord, and you not only supply pastors and leaders in the church today, Lord, you supplied us with the greatest teacher of all in Christ. You supply us with your Holy Spirit, who continues to teach us and convict us, Lord. Your hand is on your people. Help us to live like we believe that. Help us to know that your hand is good. And teach us courage as we know that better. We ask that for ourselves this week and in the future. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom.